Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Well, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Uh, welcome to this uh, webinar from the Australian, Australasian Dark Sky Alliance. And uh, this is the fourth in our webinar series this year. Um, and we try to have these things on a regular basis. So hopefully this is not your first. If it is, very welcome. Uh, look out for more to come. Um, I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that I'm speaking from today. I am based in the northern western suburbs of Sydney in Australia um, on the lands of the Wanamatagal people of the Darug Nation, uh, whose ancestors have looked after this land since the dream time. And I think it's a very uh, fitting uh, acknowledgement for this talk in particular, which is going to be exploring uh, the ancient connection of humanity with the night sky, a very compelling topic, and I'm sure we're in for a fantastic talk. Um, uh, for those of you uh, who are not entirely sure what the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance is, we are um, a registered charity who advocates for the protection and appreciation of, uh, of the night environment, whether it be astronomy or um, the, the nocturnal environment for animals and the night, the night environment in all its shapes and forms. Um, and so you've probably come to this from investigating our website or catching one of our emails. Um, very welcome uh, to those of you who have just joined us for the first time. Uh, you can check our website. It looks a bit like my background. Um, and there's ways to join and find out what we do, donate for us, and so on. Um, and we'll maybe touch on that again at the end of the talk. Okay. Um, it is my great pleasure to welcome our speaker for this webinar, Professor uh, Clive Ruggles. Uh, Clive is Emeritus Professor in Archaeoastronomy at the University of Leicester and is actually joining us from an Iron Age shed. I don't think the shed is from the Iron Age, but uh, it's located in the village that's from the Iron Age in the Welsh countryside. Uh, because Clive is actually in the middle of doing field work in the topic that he's going to talk to us about tonight. So we are very appreciative for Clive fitting us into his uh, hectic schedule. Um, Clive is very respected in this field of archaeoastronomy. He's published many books and papers on the subject. I encourage you to explore uh, his website, some fantastic images, a great collection of material there, some of which I'm sure he'll share with us tonight. And so uh, with that, I would like to, oh, I should also mention that joining us um, is also um, Marnie Oak, my fellow uh, member of the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance, uh, and Fred Watson there, who some of you may know, um, Australia's astronomer at large, and uh, joining us in the question session at the end of the talk. I should say that you should feel free to use the Q&A button on the Zoom session to post your questions at any stage in the talk. And then we'll review those at the end and, and hopefully Clive will get a chance to, to address your interesting questions um, after we hear his talk. Okay, so Clive, I will hand it over to you. Thanks, Richard. And good morning, everyone, because it's morning here. 
Um, and you see me in my splendid shed that, that, that Richard mentioned. I'm going to um, attempt to share a screen with you so you've got other, other things to look at here. And hopefully you will see my opening screen there. I'm looking for a nod from Richard. Perfect. Okay. So um, this is what I'm going to be talking about. Well, I, I ask a question here. Um, I'm actually not going to spend most of this talk answering the question. I'm going to build up to my answer to this question, which will be right at the end. And I'm coming at it from two different aspects. One is the, the archaeoastronomy that Richard mentioned, which is what I do. And I'll explain all about that. And the other is is heritage, and particularly world heritage, which is something else that I've I've got involved in doing over the last ten years. And together, they will funnel into my ultimate answer to this question, which, if you wait long enough, you'll 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 get at the end. Um. So, as Richard mentioned, oh, um, answer Richard. Right there we go. Um, so I'm actually giving you uh, this talk from one of the best dark sky areas in um, England and Wales, as it happened. And, and dark skies for us are generally pretty rubbish, as you can see from the map. But um, we do have some, some uh, nice areas and indeed some little dark sky parks. But this is where I am at this moment, and it's beautiful. And I actually only arrived last night, um, but we did have a good night. So I did get out there and enjoy it for a bit. But normally, I'm, uh, I, I'm actually, where am I located? In one of these little tiny, ever so dark, slightly dark blue areas in the middle of this mess over here. Um, so, and I, uh, so I'm based in, in Leicestershire, and I'll explain to you what I'm actually doing in Pembrokeshire at the end. Or if I forget, someone please remind me, and I'll I'll, I'll talk to you about that then. But um, it's not to, but because of the dark skies that I'm here. So um, what I do is archaeoastronomy, as mentioned. And you may have some images in your mind about what archaeoastronomy is all about. And if you think, well, it's got to do with combining archaeology and astronomy and thinking about how ancient people um, looked at the skies and things. And it has to do with things like pyramids and Stonehenge and the Nebra disc, if you've heard of it, and stuff like that. Well, you'd be broadly right. Um, but I'll give you my faith. Oh, and, and I should say that a lot of us now prefer to call it cultural astronomy because if you have archaeoastronomy, then you also have ethnoastronomy, which is um, how modern indigenous peoples understand the sky. And there's no real boundary between the two. So a lot of us prefer to talk about cultural astronomy now is, is what we're interested in. Um, um, but here's my little definition of it, just for your, for your edification. Um, and the, the important thing about this is not just we're not just interested in beliefs and practices about the sky in the past, um, but also what uses people put that to. So in in a sense, archaeoastronomy for me is nothing if it's not part of broader archaeology. It's about understanding people and cultures in the past and how their knowledge of the sky and their understanding of the sky fed into that. So there you go. There's the there's the definition. And um, I just wanted to um, start by uh, getting rid of a few mis popular misconceptions about archaeoastronomy. So here's the Giza pyramids in, in Egypt. And some of you may have a broad feeling in your mind that there's something to do with the layout of monuments on the ground, reflecting constellations in the sky. And, and here's something from Giza. Here's the three Giza pyramids. And you'll see that they seem to be laid out by the, like the belt of Orion. Um, here's some, here's the stars, here's some pyramids. Um, 
And in fact, there have been one or two popular books about this, and, and, and this is why the idea is widely known. Um, basically, if you're prepared to select stars that fit a model and miss out a few that don't, and if you're prepared to equally to select monuments that fit a model and miss out a few that don't, and then maybe fiddle a bit in the corners and, 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 and um, um, stretch things a bit, you can fit anything to anything. So this is a nonsense, basically, and it's not what people in the past were doing. And even if they were interested in, in mapping what they saw in the skies, uh, they wouldn't have done this in, in that way. We know examples. They wouldn't do it by precisely placing either monuments or even the way they draw things on pieces of paper. This is not what it's about. Of course, the other thing you might think of is Stonehenge. Yes, I will talk a little bit about Stonehenge. But um, um, And if you have the idea that Stonehenge is some sort of ancient observatory, certainly people come and look at the solstice, the midsummer sunrise at Stonehenge. They've been doing it for um, 150 years. Um, And um, here you see some modern druids. And um, a a, a former colleague of mine, an archaeologist, Aubrey Burl, once came out with the, the famous statement that modern druids have as much to do with ancient druids as ancient druids had to do with Stonehenge which is nothing in both cases. Um, I mean, Druids were much later than Stonehenge and the modern Druids is a modern thing. Nothing against what, they, what they're, they're getting out of being at Stonehenge at the solstice. But what that doesn't mean is that Stonehenge was any sort of ancient observatory, as again in popular books this has been claimed. Stonehenge Decoded was, was the book that did it in the early 60s. The idea that there were literally dozens of sun and moon alignments at Stonehenge um, I'm getting a message saying my internet connection is unstable. I hope it, I hope you can still hear me okay, but I will rely on Richard and, and Marnie to uh, wave at me frantically if something goes wrong. Um, but again, this is all about um, selecting things. And, you know, there are lots of things in the sky. There are lots of points on the horizon where they rise and set. And if you're prepared to um, select a few alignments between things, and some of them may be not quite the same period archaeologically, again, you can fit anything to anything. Stonehenge was not an ancient observatory, but it did have its solstitial alignment, and we'll, we'll, I'll mention that right at the end. So again, um, this is not what it's about. And, and the last thing is this whole idea of ancient observatories. This is very popular to up on the internet, and here are some examples that you can see on the internet. Um, this is actually a Korean sun-watching tower. It did have to do with astronomy. We know this from, from, from records, but people stood on this to make observations of the star. It wasn't an observatory in, 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 a, in a modern sense at all, but people did watch the skies from this place, amongst other places. Um, a, 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 an example from, from the, the Mayan world that's often cited, well, this looks like an observatory, for goodness sake. Uh, round buildings were, were um, very, very rare in the Mayan world. This is the only well-preserved one. We think there were two or three others. Most of them are rectangular and so on. Um, but that doesn't in itself mean it was an observatory, and there's no evidence that it was. People have found alignments from various windows, various star rises. But again, to, to actually, and, and it's, it's highly disputed amongst, amongst specialists as to whether it did have astronomical purposes or not. Um, Newgrange is a tomb. It's a Neolithic tomb in, in Ireland. Um, I'll just come back to that in just a moment. 
Um, here's a site in Germany that, that is often claimed as one of the eight, eight oldest ancient observatories, almost 6,000 years old um, and more. And, and um, it was some sort of very early Neolithic meeting place that we think was enclosed in, in, in this wooden palisade. People came here perhaps for training, perhaps for ceremonies. It had three entrances. And they broadly align. One is north-south and the other couple in the solstitial direction. Maybe that meant something to people, but this was not a place where people came to, to exclusively look at the skies. And that's the problem with this word observatory, that you think modern observatory, our ancient observatory, it's somewhere where people came exclusively or mainly um, to do observations of the skies. And when people were making observations in the skies in the past, it was usually in a much broader um, a context of, of, of life in general. Let's just, just going back to New Grange here. So this is a very famous, um, big, huge in that Neolithic tomb. It's 60 metres across. Um, a 20 metre long passage goes into the, um, into the centre of the tomb. Here you see the plan of it. Um, and these were where bones of the dead were, were buried inside. And famously, um, on a few days around the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, when the sun rises, it rises and shines through an actual lintel in a, in a box above the entrance and shines um, down this whole passage. And would have done in the past, the, the, the shift in the, where the sun is coming up the solstice uh, now to then is about the solar diameter, doesn't make uh, a huge difference to this that it has altered it slightly. Um, but the point is that this was a dark space inside this tomb, and it was dark for um, you know, 11 and a half months of the year. And then just for these few moments after sunrise, around the shortest day, um, the, the sun shone right in. And it was this roof box appears to have been deliberately constructed because at some stage the entrance was blocked off and no one went inside. This wasn't an observatory. It may have been aligned upon the winter sunrise, but it wasn't an observatory, it was a tomb. You know, even when, it's, when it was first built, people didn't go inside to say, well, I wonder if it's the shortest day yet. I'll wander down inside the door. It's a bit smelly in here, all these bones, but I'm going to sit down and see whether the sun rises. Of course they didn't. It was a tomb. And so if we ask ourselves, why did they, they, um, they orient it? The answer is going to be something about connections that existed in people's minds between death and ancestors and ancestor spirits on the one hand, and on the other hand, between the sun and seasons and seasonality. And what it's telling us is that probably the, in people's minds, the spirits of the ancestors were helping to, to, to turn the sun around, to make sure that seasonal renewal would happen in the next season. This is how people, in people's minds, they, this is how they made sense of the world around them, how the world worked. And they're making that connection between ancestors and the seasonal renewal. And, and that is why they symbolize that connection, why it's important to make that sort of orientation too. So it's that sort of thing. We're looking at astronomy, how people connected to the skies, but trying to understand something of the, the, the context in which they're doing it, which is very different from ours. Um, as tombs, people also oriented houses to summarise. And, and this is a, a, an example that I, I, I think tells us a lot. This is traditional houses from the, the Navajo in, in North America. Um, and this is actually a picture from the Pawnee, but it's a similar idea. So traditionally, the uh, traditional houses of the Navajo um, called Hogan's were laid out in a circular fashion. 
uh, with a, an entrance um, and various things were done in various quarters of the house. And um, because of the way the Navajo lived, where the lands were placed in the landscape, there were distant mountains uh, roughly in the four cardinal directions, which they saw as significant. And they um, basically assigned a whole lot of properties to those different directions, and they were associated with colour, with different gods, uh, and so on. And for that reason, it was important to design your house in certain ways. And so even now, if you go into uh, to a traditional hogan or invited there by Navajo people, um, you walk sunrise, sunwise, clockwise around uh, inside the, the hogan. Certain things are done in the western side. Greeting visitors is done in the western side. Cooking was done in a certain side. Um, and, and, and sleeping was done another side. And the entrance is always to the east. And, and yes, that has to do with the sun. It's always in the direction of sunrise. Um, but it's also um, because of this whole cosmology. So uh, it is cosmology, again, not in the, the, the modern sense, but in a way of understanding the world, tying everything together. And for the, for the Navajo, it's about landscape um, as well as, as, as uh, what the, the sun does. You know, the quarter where the sun rises, the quarter where the sun sets, the quarter where the sun is never seen, um, and the quarter where the sun passes over. Uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and for them, all these things were tied together and you build your house, your traditional house, in harmony with that. And of course, if we're archaeologists coming along um, and we, we knew nothing of this from the Navajo themselves and from their history, uh, we would at least spot this tendency um, to always have the entrance, not exactly east, but in this sort of quarter of the horizon. So very often these orientations will be telling us something about these broader cosmologies. And of course, you know, what people were doing in the past isn't always rational in our sense of looking at things. They didn't do things because you know, we can say, oh, yes, it's more sensible to plant there or to plant those the things at a certain time of year. A lot of it is that, of course. But also, there will be other means of understanding going on in people's minds that will also influence that. Um, and very often, and usually the influence is in a very positive way, sometimes that we find that we didn't understand until we, we get to know it better. And, and this is, as I'm actually in, a, I, I actually should say, I'm in an Iron Age village at the moment. And then, um, this is because um, uh, we're, we're doing an excavation, which I mentioned at the end, about half an hour away from here, but there was no uh, internet. So I uh, was able to come here to an Iron Age village. Um, and I'm in the shed at the back of the Iron Age village, and we're on plan C for connecting to the internet. So um, like, like well, um, Boris, if you've been following the British news lately, had a plan B for COVID, which we're, we're told we might be going on to. We needed plan C to get onto the internet this morning, but we made it. But anyway, um, if you look at Iron Age roundhouses, and here's a traditional one, not from where I am, in fact, um, they um, tend to have an orientation to the east and to the southeast. And there's been an argument for, for years as to whether that was cosmological because of, like the Navajo, people in the Iron Age had an idea of how the cosmos functioned, or whether it was practical, uh, because on the shortest days of the year, the sun's rising in the southeast, and so you get the early morning warmth heating up the house. And so you'd get this argument between the pragmatists and between the, the um, people who are saying, no, we have to understand things in a different way. They understood things a different way. It's cosmological. And of course, the two aren't exclusive. I, I strongly suspect there were elements of both going on. Anyway, so 
archaeoastronomy is all about that sort of stuff. Why is it important? Well, um, for me, um, the obvious answer, and the obvious answer with an, an audience like all of you is, well, of course, the sky in the past was much more prominent than it, than it is these days. So, so most people these days don't appreciate uh, what a, a truly dark sky is like. Uh, but of course, people in the past did. They lived with every, every clear night. They would see a dark sky wherever they were in the world. That was part of their world, part of their environment. They lived with it. They understood it and so on. And of course, that's, that's, um, that's the answer. But um, it wasn't the exclusive part. It was just one hugely important part of the world, a part that, that we in the modern world tend to have forgotten. But um, it's also a special part of their environment for us. And the reason for that is that um, if people build a monument like Stonehenge or something, um, they will relate it just as the Navajo houses were, were related to, and, and indeed Newgrange, to the broader environment. So you don't just stick a monument or even a house uh, down at the, it, it largely would have related to the whole environment around which is the landscape, the visual landscape. Other understandings of that, of course, and, and, and where ancestors came from, other, other things that, that, that were understood about that. Um, but there may be topographic features there that are the prominent that make sense to us. Um, but the sky was all part of that. It's all mixed in. It wasn't exclusive, um, but it was just as much a part of all that as everything else. But it's special for us if we're trying to understand what people were doing in the past. And the reason for that is that, of course, we can construct exactly what their skies look like because we have all our, our tools and here's Stellarium Planetarium tool. We can wind back the clock. We know where the sun and the moon rose and all the stars rose and set. We can do the procession. We can we can watch. So we know, actually, we can see their, their skies. Um, from the past. We can't see other parts of their environment. Yes, we can get a broad idea of the topography, but we've no idea where uh, in any exact sense what was going in the landscape. We, we get some clues from the archaeological things. Everything else is a bit is is a, a bit fuzzy or a lot fuzzy, but we know exactly what the, the sky is looking at. So if you've got monuments or houses that may have related to many different things, but if they related to the sky as part of that, we can see that, and we can measure that, and we can know that. So it gives us an important insight into all those past cosmologies and past understandings. And that's why, for me, archaeoastronomy is an important thing to do um, for um, understanding what was going in the mind, on in the minds of people in the past. And the way we do it, the sort of evidence we, we um, deal with, well, alignments is the obvious one. So Stonehenge is pointing at midsummer sunrise, for example, or New Grange has its alignment. So alignments are, are, are one set of things uh, that, that archaeoastronomers look at all the time. But also um, there are other things like counts of things. And um, now um, here's a, a lovely example from northern Mexico of a um, calendar from um, hunter-gatherer people. And it's actually a nine-month calendar, a, a lunar calendar. It marks off phases of the moon. And the reason that it runs for nine months, it's to do with the, the um, gestation period for deer who they were hunting um, and other things. Um, this is a particularly fine example of a calendar that is marked on the air. And of course, there are other ways of representing the sky. 
all of these have difficulties. I mean, for example, alignments. I mean, everything is going to be that the, the, every orientation is going to be aligned somewhere, and there's a lot of stuff in the sky. And and um, you know, even if you took the 15 brightest stars, and if you're talking about prehistoric monument, you didn't know where in say 500 years, rough give or take, when it was built. Well, a 500 year period and the 15 brightest stars covers a third of the horizon. So you can kind of be prepared to choose the best date and choose the best star. You can fit almost anything to anything. So we have to be really careful about this. Um, and counts is the same thing. And, and um, I remember uh, astronomer Brad Schaefer, who some of you may know, um, he once years ago uh, produced a list of um, a possibly astronomical explanation for every number from 1 to 199. So it didn't matter what, matter what you were seeing. If you saw a number of dots, you would say, oh, there's an astronomical explanation for that. So again, we have to be really careful. But on the other hand, some things where you count off are very obvious. And also with representation. So the Nebra disk, uh, famously, people claimed it to be some sort of surveying instrument. I think it is just a uh, powerful representation of the cosmos, the sun and the moon for sure. Possibly this is meant to be the Pleiades, a cluster of stars. The rest of the stars are just distributed evenly around here. They're just symbolic representations. It was an object of power, dinner, dinner plate uh, sized shield that probably some warrior was, 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 was wearing. And this gave great cosmological power to that. And I, I suspect it was nothing more than that but it's still a use of the sky that's important to us. Um, so one way we know that uh, our alignments are, um, or one way that we can be sure that an alignment measure meant something is that we have a whole lot of monuments that are, that are pointing in a similar direction. This is a nice example from northeast Scotland, as I'm, as I'm in Britain, um, of 70 uh, stone circles, but they have a distinctive recumbent stone that was deliberately laid on its side on one side. They all orient; uh, they're all oriented within about ninety degrees of the the um, the compass. And they uh, this orientation, I won't go into the details, is basically related to the to the moon um, as we think. And um, the the uh, we can we can see that lunar association by looking at this trend in orientations. So a lot of it is is about that sort of thing. But in practice, this is tricky because we can't get too statistical about all this because um, we're not dealing with laws of the universe. We're dealing with people. So however strong the tradition was of you know we we when we build a new stone circle we orient it towards the sun or the moon or this event um, depending what it was at the time there were people are people traditions change or or Joe uh, Fred Blocks of some family there will will decide that his family going to do it differently they get oriented on something else um, and so there, there's always going to be fuzzy edges because we're dealing with people um, and of course that introduces subjectivity. Um, and this is always the balance that we we have to strike. But um, trying to be objective and choosing, which, but at the same objective, dealing with people like it's the sort of scientific on one one's budget of I've been showing in the background here. Plan group, which the point. It was one of the most uh, group of tombs. 
Ufit group to be discovered by the archaeologists in the forties, um, and it's one temple with three temples on the, the the to the east, and they're oriented on the solstice, the equinox, and the other solstice. Um, and this was known; it's been known since the forties. But there are now known to be about fifty of these groups of, of tombs, at different sites. That's all worked out, but just it's a different mine site. None of the other. They're all roughly one on the west and a few on the east, um, but they don't work exactly. And so if you think of that too statistically, you say, oh, well, this one probably was Charles, I think. Um, anthropologically, and in fact, archaeologically too, uh, what we think was going on was that initially, that these were actually related to the sun and to ceremonies with the sun. Initially, they were built incorporating actual alignments, but the later ones and later modifications of the ones that were there didn't need to keep reduplicating. People knew about those, those of uh, the, the relationship with the sun and the ceremonies that went on there. They built them in the same style, but they didn't actually incorporate alignments in the same sense. And how you feel about that argument, whether you come down on the sun, that's a bit subjective, don't like that, or whether you think, okay, that makes anthropological sense would depend on, on on where you come from, whether you're more of an anthropologist or more of an uh, astronomer or an archaeologist, depending. And that's the sort of that's the sort of issue we get into. So there you go. That was that was archaeology, and that's one side that I come into of this whole set of issues with dark skies from. Um, and just to say, I said earlier, archaeoastronomy and astronomy, cultural astronomy, there are actually other, other terms. One that's become popular recently is skyscape archaeology. And this tries to get across this idea that landscape and skyscape, in people's minds, we think of them two separate things. You know, this is all Linnaean classifications. It's up in the sky, beyond the clouds, it's astronomy and so on. If it's, it's walking around on the ground, it's, it's, it's biology and so on. Um, People in the past didn't use those boundaries. They they made sense of, of what they perceived around them by connecting it all together in different ways. And the skyscape uh, alongside the landscape was part of that. And so skyscape archaeology has become a popular term. And this is just to back them. If you've got a, a few hundred dollars to to, to spare, um, then then there's this three volume handbook. But but if you're if you're at an institution that subscribes to Springer, you can you can you can get uh, chapters on almost anything. It's like there's about two thousand pages and uh, about two hundred and fifty articles on archaeoastronomy, ethnoastronomy from all over the place in that. So that's the archaeoastronomy. Now on the um, the other side of what I evolved in is heritage and um, world heritage. Now, you may know about the World Heritage List from UNESCO. Um, there's there's uh, 1150 odd properties on that at the moment. Um, so the, 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 the dumb thing is to call them World Heritage properties rather than World Heritage sites because they can include landscapes and so on. But most of us still call them World Heritage sites informally. Um, and they, are, as, as you may well know, um, they're cultural. Most of them are cultural. So places like the Taj Mahal and so on are on the list. They're cultural sites. Places like Uluru are on the list because they're, they're natural sites. And a small number are both um, mixed sites, as they're called. Um, so there are World Heritage Sites. They've been um, going for 30 years and more. And every year, the World Heritage Committee of UNESCO um, decides to add a few more to the list. And occasionally, as we found out in Britain this year, sometimes they take them off too. Anyway, um, the 
Um, about 10, 15 years ago, it became um, an, an issue within UNESCO. Certain people in UNESCO became concerned because there weren't many sites um, to do with astronomy or indeed science in general on the World Heritage List. You know, if you go to, if you look interested in Italian churches, there's like dozens of them. But if you're interested in like observatories or, or that, there's, there's virtually nothing. In fact, there were a few. Um, but they are generally there not because of their relationship to astronomy. So in you know, places like um, this is this is um, a 14th century um, Ulebeg's observatory from from Samarkand in, in Uzbekistan. That's on the list, but it's not on the list because it's an amazing site in the history of astronomy. Um, it, it is there because it's part of Samarkand, which is a crossroads of cultures, and it's just one of the sites that's in there. Even the Royal Observatory in, 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 in Greenwich, and same is true of Pulkovo in, in Russia, even that is only on the list because it's part of maritime Greenwich, uh, rather than being a fantastic observatory in its own sense. And likewise, or the ancient side of things, so Stonehenge, Giza pyramids, Newgrange things are on the list, um, but they're not actually uh, there because of their astronomical connect. They're, they're there because of their archaeological importance. And so um, in 2004, um, UNESCO or a, a couple of people within UNESCO um, started up an initiative, Astronomy World Heritage Initiative, and Anna, Anna Sidorenko, yeah, I could say Anna, Anna goodness me, Anna Sidorenko um, is, is, uh, was the person who um, got this going. And it was started, um, well, actually, it was about science being underrepresented on the list. You know, there's an S in UNESCO. It, it stands for science. And people were realising there ought to be a hell of a lot more science re represented on the World Heritage List. And uh, they focused on astronomy for one obvious reason is that it's kind of there for all cultures. So, so actually, let's go for, for astronomy because it gives us more scope to, to um, find significant things. Well, that was fine by us. And I got involved as one of the experts in, in the, the early days consulted on, on this. Um, but the real breakthrough came in 2008. Now, 2009, some of you may remember, was the International Year of Astronomy. And in that, you know, they, UNESCO have these international years every, every year, and, and um, they could be all manner of things. I think 2010 was the International Year of the Potato, to put it in some sort of context. But anyway, um, so in 2009, UNESCO and the, the International Astronomical Union were, were very much involved in promoting the, the uh, International Year of Astronomy. And so the, in the year preceding, they actually signed this big formal agreement, a memorandum of understanding to promote this initiative together. So the IAU became involved. Now, I was involved in the IAU at the time because I was just about to become president of the History of Astronomy Commission within the IAU. Because the IAU does contain a few people like me who are extremely lapsed astronomers and astrophysicists, but, but who have done nothing but history or archaeology and other things for most of their lives. But we're still involved in the IAU and we have a, we have a there is a history commission and because I was president, so I was asked to to um, um, to lead this initiative on the side of the IU. So I basically spent the next ten years working with Anna uh, from the IU side to push forward the initiative. Um, so I mean, one of the things we did was to set up the portal to the heritage of astronomy, which you can still find out there on the the internet, and it's still functioning, going strong. And one thing that does um, is basically a one-stop website for anyone who's interested in astronomical world heritage or potential world heritage. It has a load of case studies on it, 
Um, some of them are already World Heritage Sites, some of them are not, some of them never will be. Um, but the idea is to help people compare what's out there and whether, because the only people that can put forward World Heritage nominations in the, at the end of the day are actual countries and their representative bodies. So, you know, we as astronomers couldn't go in and say this should be a World Heritage Site, um, but people in certain countries could try and persuade their authorities to put forward World Heritage Sites. And this sort of thing helps to give them more confidence by showing them how important it is. And we ended up working with the uh, body called ICOMOS. It stands for the International Council on Monuments and Science, on Monuments and Sites. Um, and this is an advisory body to UNESCO. And basically, when people put in uh, nominations for cultural world heritage sites, ICOMOS is the body that, um, that, that that assesses them and tells UNESCO, uh, recommends to UNESCO whether they should be listed or not. Um, and so we actually in the IU worked with ICOMOS to produce a couple of things called thematic studies, which is very, as you can see, it had this very um, slipping off the tongue title um, about heritage sites to do with astronomy and archaeoastronomy. Um, and basically what this is about is, is trying to um, give countries that might want to put forward sites confidence to do so uh, and giving the case studies and examples and so on. The first one came out in 2010. And um, we had a hugely broad remit. It was great fun. Um, um, everything from prehistory through to um, classical sites or ancient parts of the world, right through to um, through the Renaissance stuff, to actually co um, contemporary uh, astronomy and astrophysics. And we were looking at, uh, at modern observatories, even space astronomy. We even got somewhat involved in thinking about you know, potential heritage sites. You know, Neil Armstrong's footprints on the moon is an issue and how we preserve those. Um, and of course, the thing that's particularly of interest to people here, dark sky places. Um, and there were issues about um, um, getting dark sky places on the World Heritage List right from the start that we, we needed to try tackling more and on. Um, you know, as a result of that initiative, these things take a long time to work through because um, countries have to decide uh, that they want to put forward particular world heritage sites. They have a each country has what's called a tentative list with a couple, maybe a couple of dozen sites that they're going to put forward. The countries only put forward one site in any given year, um, and then the whole process of uh, of having it assessed takes eighteen months to two years. So it's a very slow process. And it happened that there were a couple of sites that were in the process when we started. One of these um, observatory in India, Jantamantar, is one of the uh, very latest fixed observatories in the Islamic tradition. Um, and that was, that was listed in 2010, as was um, the uh, 14th century, I think it's 14th, uh, um, uh, uh, the gnomon, this huge horizontal gnomon for telling the, the time of year from the length of the midday sun shadow in China. Um, and these were listed in 2010, uh, basically for their astronomical um, uh, significance principally. Um, and also a little bit after that, Stonehenge was actually, they, they, they amended the significance of why Stonehenge was on to, and actually for the first time um, to... Um, Acknowledge that there were astronomical aspects to the significance of Stonehenge. Uh, oh yeah, and that's just showing that it's not just Stonehenge; it's other sites in the in the vicinity have solstitial and, and potentially lunar alignments as well. And and just in the last um, 
two or three years, this has really borne fruit. We had our first modern observatory listed a couple of, of years ago, which was Jodrell Bank in the UK. Um, and also in the same year, a very different place, a thing called a cultural landscape, a whole landscape in the middle of Gran Canaria, the biggest of the, the Canary Islands. Um, and this whole area is a landscape. Um, it's got historical and modern cultural practices, um, um, many different things interrelated. But part of that, as I was talking earlier about, it, is, is the involvement of the sky and sites relating to the sky. And there are two very important archaeoastronomical sites uh, as part of that. And so the archaeoastronomy was a big part of that nomination. And perhaps the biggest thing and the for, for pleasing for me personally is that just now, in the, a couple of months ago, we had Chanquillo in Peru, the 13 Towers, um, were, were put on the list. Which is lovely for me because I was one of the people that, that first published about this back in 2007. And here we are uh, 14 years on and it's become a World Heritage Site. So um, this is fabulous stuff. Um, but, and that, if you're going to call somewhere as something in the past an ancient observatory, perhaps this, this is it. I mean, it's, it's certainly... Um, a, 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 basically, it's a cladrical instrument. You can measure the day of the year using sunrise against these towers uh, from this observing point. We know this was an important point because there were people standing here. They were making ritual offerings. We, we found those archaeologically. Um, it's basically a solar, solar horizon calendar, but on a monumental scale. So each of these towers is like four to six metres tall and 10 metres on the side. These are huge. Um, and, and there's much more to it than just the calendar. It's part of, part of a huge ceremonial site. It's to do with, with um, regulating things, probably regulating warfare, because it was a very turbulent times. Anyway, um, but a fabulous place. I could go on about that for an hour, but, but, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> um, but just coming back to dark skies, the, 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 and dark skies were always a big issue of contention. And when we, we um, the, the, thema the thematic initiative um, was put up on um, UNESCO's website, um, it always had this big statement in it that dark sky sites cannot be considered as world heritage. And one of the problems is that, in a sense, um, having a dark sky is not a, a positive quality of a place. It's a sort of, as UNESCO looking at it, a sort of negative quality because it's the lack of light pollution. Um, and so how, how you could sort of get round that mindset was, was one of the big challenges. And so the second thematic study, which came out in 2017, was addressing three or four major issues um, with astronomy. And basically, this uh, goes into um, the dark sky qualities of place in huge detail, to cut a very long story short. Um, just the background to this is that there are 10 criteria for um, what may make something worthy of being a World Heritage Site. And the key concept for UNESCO is this thing called outstanding universal value. What that actually means is that uh, it's considered by UNESCO that the value of this place is so great that it transcends cultural boundaries. You know, without question, where, whoever you are in humanity, this is for you. And what's more, that's going to continue down the generations. So the OUV is, is just this concept that this, this is important for all humanity for all time, which is why it's so important to preserve. And then there are various criteria for recognising that, of which the, the key one is number one, it's unique, a unique masterpiece. Um, and there are others that, that, that um, and these, these one to, one to five are all on the cultural side. 
um, different ways in which it can be the the pinnacle of a certain human tradition and it's the best preserved and so on. Um, there's a funny um, um, criterion six is intangible. So this is more about what's in people's minds. Um, and there have been huge issues with that because science, of course, is intangible in itself. So science related to, to science can have a strong um, criterion six, but on the other hand, they need something tangible there, something um, that actually is physical that represents that. And then seven to 10, I haven't put them all down here, are the, cult, uh, the, the natural ones. Um, and I just put in seven, which is the superlative natural place. And so the question for us was, you know, well, so do we think of dark skies as cultural or natural? Well, um, the conclusion that the, the, the that we came up with, um, have it, we had to acknowledge that, in a sense, a dark sky place can't in itself be considered um, a, a World Heritage Site. Um, and we couldn't get away from that. But what we argued was that, and, and what's been accepted, is that dark sky values, the dark sky properties of a place can enhance. If you've got some other, um, some other aspect of the site that's recognised as OUV, is recognised as that makes it World Heritage be a cultural or natural, then the dark sky property can be a, a, a very strong con contributing factor to that and hence needs preserving and everything that goes with it. Um, and so um, the dark sky values can enhance both the natural or the cultural value, which means that as part of putting that site forward for world heritage, you become concerned about preserving that and, and, and um, the, the, your, your case for nominating that site then has to include all the mechanisms for preserving the dark skies as part of that recognised value of the place. Now, that's the way we went forward. Now, there's, in practice, there's different ways of handling different sites. So um, we we have various uh, sites on the the, the list that are that are dark that, that, that are dark skies, but could be handled in different ways. And this is this is one from Hungary, um, and the the Hortobágyi Pusta, if I pronounce it approximately right, um, is a, a sort of not quite marshland. It's a low grassland area, rather unique in 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 um, Central Europe, Western. Uh, you don't find them in Western Europe, but it's there's some further east. Um, but it's it's an extraordinary area um, physically, and that has brought with it extraordinary um, uh, shepherding, particularly practices, but the animal herding practices. And this became a World Heritage Site because of the shepherding practices and the, the, the cultural side of the place. Um, but also it became uh, one of the earliest IDA dark sky parks because the shepherding practices are linked to the dark skies. And, and we know about this and the, 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 the shepherds use the stars to, to um, regulate the, the shepherding practices. So this has the World Heritage status and it has the dark sky um, um, park status together, which is one way to, to, to handle it. Um, and it's a part of the, the physical heritage, the, the, the cultural heritage, which is still there to this day, um, which is intangible. And, and people think of heritage as the World Heritage List, places, spectacular monuments, but there's also the through Criterion 6, I mentioned, but also there are other initiatives within UNESCO that recognise intangible heritage, and, and um, this keys into all of them. Um, another approach is the approach that's been taken down in, in, in New Zealand, where there's been a big interest for some years in trying to get the 
Araki, Mackenzie. This is where it was the first gold um, international dark sky reserve, I'm sure you all know. Um, and there's been a, um, various people interested in trying to get that recognised as a World Heritage Site uh, as well. Um, and the, the most promising way forward with this one would seem to be to try and get it as an extension to the existing um, Southwest New Zealand, which is uh, a huge uh, area uh, which is already a World Heritage Site. Uh, a cult, uh, this is a natural uh, World Heritage Site. It actually ticks, one of the few that, uh, natural World Heritage Sites that ticks all four of the criteria for natural sites. It's a huge area and it's, it's beautiful, it's important. But the, uh, there's an overlap with Araki Mount Cook in the corner with the Araki um, Dark Sky Reserve area. And so what people are trying, and this, this, is, this is ongoing, is to see if they, if they can um, have this attached with the dark sky properties onto the existing World Heritage Site to extend it. Um, and of course, that brings with it, I'm getting close to that question, <laughs> gradually closer. Um, this brings with it tourism, because when you nominate a, a site for World Heritage status, or when you're thinking about more generally about heritage of the site, that brings tourism and a world heritage site brings tourism of course part of that is how you're going to handle that tourism and if dark skies are important then you're going to you're going to want dark sky tourism and not other forms of tourism are going to ruin the dark skies um at araki mckenzie around the the um, um mount john observatory they handle this very well they have this is their their cafe their dark sky cafe there's if you go there at night they have the infrared lights in there and people can go in while they're looking while they're they're Looking at the dark skies, looking at other stuff at Mount John, uh, but they can go in there and relax in the cafe and there's no light pollution. It's all very carefully handled. Um, another example from one of those thematic studies from um, Austria. Again, now we're back in Europe, the much more lighting, but these are uh, relatively dark areas in Austria. And again, with the, the dark sky tourism built into the um, picture to, to try and preserve um, that aspect of the heritage. Um, and of course, it's also an issue at major um, observatory sites. And we've been going around this uh, quite a bit in the context of the initiative. Obviously, Georgia Bank's on the list now, but the, there have been various thoughts about putting some of the major optical observatories, particularly the ones in northern Chile or perhaps the ones on the Canaries, maybe even Mauna Kea on Hawaii, but that's a whole bunch of other issues there, as you may be aware. Um, but again, um, it, it, how, how, I mean, there are various issues with observatory directors and the, the main worry amongst modern observatory directors is, hang on a minute, if you're going to put forward my observatory as, as a world heritage, surely that's going to restrict the science. I've got to have, you know, this observatory has to have the flexibility to carry on doing science. That means constant change, building new telescopes, et cetera, et cetera, of course. Um, well, heritage isn't like that. I mean, and, 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 um, one of the reasons that we've got Georgia Bank on there is because you, you, have, a, you have a plan for how you're going to develop um, that basically preserves certain aspects that link to the, the heritage that you've got so that you still retain your, your outstanding universal value. And, and there, there, there doesn't have to be a conflict. It's a question of thinking through how you um, express the values of, of, of the heritage and how you preserve those while continuing to have all the flexibility you need to continue doing science. Um, 
But of course, there are some examples. And Pic Midi in, in, in France is the classic one of this, where they've actually used um, tourism to um, really keep the, the, the science going. Um, and Pic Midi has, my goodness, it's had some ups and downs over the, the decades of its existence. Um, but a major one 20 or was it 30 years ago now, when all the, the funding seemed to be stopping and, and, and um, there was no way to preserve it. And they, they came up with the, the, the scheme to actually encourage tourism at the site and to bring tourists up on enhanced cable cars and things. Um, but also to make those tourists aware of the science and in a sense to use the income from that tourism to keep um, quite a lot of the science going at Pichu Media. And that's, that model has actually worked for them. And it's the reason that Pichu Media is still there now and still doing science. So that can work. But the big issue is tangible connections. If we're, we're coming back, whether it's UNESCO or elsewhere, um, if you're going to say, right, we need to dark sky around this cultural site, then um, people are going to say, well, okay, but what are you, what's the connection you're preserving? Now, there are places with, and, and of course, the thing is that um, most, uh, well, okay, I'll come back to that. Um, here's an example from Oman in the Middle East that, that, that was um, in, in one of the case studies. And this is a, a lovely example because it's a culture. It is actually a World Heritage Site, but the, the World Heritage is to do with the um, scheme for assigning water. And they have these, these systems, they call them um, um, aflage. Aflage is the plural of aflage is the singular, as I'm told. And if there's Arabic speakers, I uh, forgive me for getting this slightly wrong. But the point is that they, they had these traditional systems for managing water supplies so that for a, a certain length of time, for an hour or however long it is, uh, a certain farm will get the water and then it will be switched. And the local um, representative who is making those switches um, times it. Traditionally, that timing was done by sighting stars at night. You know, whilst during the day, it's done by sighting the sun with sundial uh, 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 um, uh, ways of doing it with sundials. But during the night, it was done with stars. And you can still find these little markers. They're done in different ways. Um, certainly 50 years ago um, and more, a bit more recently than that, these were quite extensive. And the person would sight on Sirius or another bright star um, and sight against various markers. When, when the star aligned with those markers, then it would be time to switch the water to the next farm or something. Um, and so here there was a system, a cultural system. Um, it was threatened by two things. Um, threatened by wristwatches <laughs> about 40 years ago, but also it was threatened by light pollution because people would start not being able to see the skies again. And so um, both of those became um, important in trying to preserve the heritage of this practice, um, the, the, um, the traditional practice. Um, and so that has been done, I think, um, in a, to a small extent, though a lot of it has been lost. Um, but yes, what I was going to say earlier was that most of the ancient monuments, think coming back to Britain for the moment, have to do with the sun or possibly the moon. And the thing about that is it's not sort of, it's not about, well, sunrise and sunset, it's not really about dark skies. So most of these sites where, where we have agreed connections with, um, between ancient sites and the sky, it's more to do with solstices. Um, or, or occasionally in, uh, with the moon, or quite often more controversially, very rarely with stars. 
That's not to say that people weren't making those connections in the past. The problem is that there's a lot of possibilities. And so we can't just select one. You know, if we haven't got the, the, the um, a person from 5,000 years ago saying, oh, yes, we did this, um, we can't just come along and say, well, that star aligns because there's too many to choose. We can't prove it. If you like, it's just not leaving its record in the, the archaeological um, record that's available to us. Whereas a solstitial alignment is something more obvious and, and, and we can, we can um, see it more easily. Um, there are a few possibilities. Um, and I think the most viable one um, and it's still a bit, um, it's still a bit controversial. It's a place called Thornborough. This is in Yorkshire, Northern England. I'm putting a map on here. Um, and it's three henge monuments. So a henge monument, slight stone hinge without stones, if you like, a, a huge ditch and bank monument, probably 300 meters across that sort of size. And there are three of these in a, in a, in a rough alignment with, um, entrances at two, um, at two ends. Um, and they broadly align with the rising, and pretty pre precisely, the rising of Sirius um, and before that of, of Orion's belt, or coming up at this, this angle at our latitude. Um, and um, now that in itself um, doesn't prove a lot, um, but here there's a lot of archaeological evidence. First of all, that these were pilgrimage sites. And around um, a couple of these hinges are huge areas that have been excavated full of um, tools and instruments and other things that people have come. There were crowds camping out around these sites, people coming here for ceremonies. And there are lots of evidence of quite fine tools being brought and then, then um, uh, not thrown away unused, but, but presumably they were being um, given as, as, as votive offerings at these ceremonies. People coming from quite some way around, like 100 miles or so or more um, uh, from across the Pennines, the hills got the, the middle of England, um, they were coming from some distance. Um, how did they know when to come? How did they know when a ceremony was going to, to, to take place? Um, and so what's been proposed, and I think quite viably, is that they used the helical rising, first period before pre-dawn arrived, the Orion's belt and then Sirius, to, to time. Well, basically, when Orion's belt starts appearing, that's the time to set out. It might take you a couple of weeks to get to the place. And then when you get there, and this is sim symbolized in, in, in Sirius and Orion's belt, these are orientations. Um, the site spans, there's earlier um, monuments here, thousand years earlier, they're off alignment slightly, which seems to be correcting for precession, which, which also um, adds a bit of, of, of um, plausibility to this. Um, so there are arguments for saying the here's a site that probably did relate to the stars, but that sort of thing's rare, at least where we only have prehistory to go. Here's another example. I'm whipping you around the world here. And so this is, what am I doing on time? Have I really been talking for an hour? I'll shut up in a moment. Wow, doesn't time fly when you're sitting in a shed enjoying yourself? Um, yeah, so here's an example from Hawaii, and it's a wall. And, and yes, here's the Southern Cross, of course. Um, and um, this is a very strange wall. It's basically on the southernmost point of the island of Maui. This is a very backlands area. Um, it's, it's a very marginal area. Unfortunately, there's no golf courses and resorts here. No one comes to here. Um, and down by the beach is this wall. It's an isolated stretch of really substantial wall with this huge, great notch in the middle of it. It was never connected to anything. What the heck was it there for? 
And to cut a long story short, it's, um, it's alignment looking the other way out to sea, as you saw in the previous um, um, picture, is upon the Southern Cross. It's slightly off south, so it catches the Southern Cross when it's standing upright. Um, the name traditionally is the Pa Nana, and in Hawaiian, Pa is to look, na, uh, sorry, Nana is to look, and a Pa is, is, is a wall. So it means sighting wall, that's its name. And interesting, Pa Nana in modern Hawaiian is the word for a compass. Um, and what we believe it is, it wasn't uh, something for observing the, the Southern Cross going across. We think it was a monument site. It was where it's basically built archaeologically around the time when the long distance navigation was fading out across the Pacific. So probably 12, 1300 uh, AD. Um, it was, we, we think it was a, a monument. This was the place where the currents bring you in if you're coming up to the Hawaiian Islands from Tahiti and also the place where you leave from. Um, this is monumentalizing, monument if you like, through the stars, because for, for Hawaiians, the Southern Cross symbolizes the, the voyage south. Um, and and um, it's, it's symbolizing voyages, maybe even particular, a particular voyager. We don't know that. Um, so there's a, that, there is a direct connection to the skies. And in fact, that, oh, oh here's another one. This is one on the, the Pleiades. The Pleiades regulated the Hawaiian calendar. We have two or three sites. Lots of temples aligned on the Pleiades, particular type of temple. Um, but three or four of them were very precise sighting devices. So, and here is a modern site, Ola Moana, um, the um, house in the ocean. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's a site that's still sacred. Um, and so I showed this with permission. Um, and it's, um, it, it is related to voyaging. And in fact, the, um, because it's, it's related to um, voyaging by the stars and its connections to the stars, I'm, 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 a lot of this is, is now is, is modern um, preserved knowledge. Um, but um, there was a strong... Um, push about 15 years ago by developers to build a new housing estate up the coast from here. And because of this association with the site, um, that was stopped because it was important to preserve the dark skies and that connection at that site. So finishing, I'm about to finish, back at Stonehenge, um, we have, of course, Stonehenge is not in the darkest place in the world. Um, and people, when they're given permission, can come here at night. We have a big problem with Stonehenge at night, mainly the A303, which is a huge trunk road that goes just past the site. Um, but yes, there's a whole load of controversy going on about shoving it in a tunnel. Um, unless anyone's interested, I won't go into that right now, um, and which would preserve some of the light pollution. But um, I came back from one of my trips from Hawaii about a few years ago, and we're sitting in the bath. I don't want to get too, 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 go into too much detail on this, but I, am I sitting in the bath on a Saturday morning reading the paper? And there was this article, letter in the Times saying, Stonehenge should be lit up at night. And it got me a bit annoyed, so annoyed that I ended up writing response to this and sending it off to the Times, which got published itself the next Monday. And then I had the radio ring up, Radio 4 ringing up. We wanted to, to and so basically um, I, I, I ended up um, becoming the, the bête noir in this argument about whether whether Stonehenge should be lit up at night. Um, the point, I, I obviously don't think it should. I really don't think it should. But of course, at the end of the day, all the alignments at Stonehenge are to do with the sun and the moon. 
they're not, there's nothing, um, despite what people may say, that uh, specifically aligns to the stars. No evidence for it. It's Stonehenge. I'm sure people are there looking at the stars. Um, for me, the reason it's important to preserve places like Stonehenge with as dark a sky as possible and to make sure that the, that the tourism does not conflict with that is because we are trying to give people an impression of not just the monument itself, but where it stood in its landscape, in the whole environment that people appreciate at the time. Yes, I know the landscape's changed, but um, just as we're trying to get this road removed so that, uh, that this road you see here already has been removed, that's part of restoring Stonehenge to its natural or, or more natural environment so that people can, uh, uh, can appreciate that best. And for me, uh, keeping the skies as dark as possible at Stonehenge is, is, is actually an integral part of that because the sky was the natural environment um, and reminding people of that by having this, this site dark at skies, is, is uh, uh, dark at night, is absolutely uh, integral to that. And so I will continue to argue in that way in the future. Look, I'm sorry I've gone on for, I've gone on much longer than I was intending. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. I'm in Wales, so there it is in Welsh as well. Um, and, and if you've got time, if anyone's still there around and wants to ask a few things, I'm, I'm happy to sit here. They've supplied me with a coffee, which is wonderful. I'm going to stop sharing so you see me back in my, my hut. And um, thank you for listening. Thanks so much, Colin. That's uh, a real-world tour of uh, astronomical heritage sites. It's, uh, it's amazing. And... Uh, you know, as a as a so-called professional astronomer myself, I, I've not heard of some of these sites, so I've definitely learned something, um, as well as becoming more aware of my own ignorance. Um, so thank you for that. So we'd like to um, give everybody listening the chance uh, to ask some questions, if you would like. So I'm just looking at the chat. So we've lots of uh, very nice comments in the chat, Clive. That's a much appreciated. Oh, just, I just brought it up. Thank you, everyone. No, it's a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Go ahead, Fred. Oh, thanks, Richard. Look, I, I'm. Um, I, I feel embarrassed uh, talking about this because it's slightly off the, you know, the the theme of your talk, Clive. It's a fantastic talk. Thank you very, very much. Um, but um, I've got some burning questions about Chunkyo. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> and um, I, you know, it's not really linked to the theme of of dark skies and monuments. But you probably know that Marnie and I actually visited Chankio, uh in two thousand and seven with Ivan Getsi, um, and uh, I wrote about our visit subsequently and thought a lot about what that monument is all about, and I was left with questions that didn't seem to have any answers. Hmm. I wonder if you've got any now. This is go for it. Well, um, one of the things that's really intriguing is, as you said, it's a notched horizon. Basically, these fourteen hmm. towers notch the horizon, um, as seen from two observation sites: one on the eastern side and one on the western side. And uh, it's intriguing that one of them, and I, it's a long time since I've read this stuff, Clive, so forgive me <clears throat> tumbling through it. I can't remember which way around it is. But um, they differ in what you see. One has a full view of the 13 towers, and the other 
Is it 11? You can only see 11 from the other side. 11, well, you, you, can, you would have been able to see 12 because the, the, tower, the, the 12 towers have been degraded a bit. That's fine. But yeah, the 13th one bends round, so you don't, you don't see anything more than perhaps the very tip of that from the eastern side. Yes. So is that simply um, the fact that the towers were aligned along the ridge itself, this north-south ridge? which has a curve in one end of it. I think if I remember right, is it the northern end? I can't remember. But uh, the southern end. It's yeah. the southern end. Okay. So so there wasn't any um logic in 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 placing the sites where you could see eleven on one side and, and thirteen on the other. It, it it is just accidental. Is that is that your view? Well I I'm I, I still am not entirely convinced about the the eastern observing point and what it was doing i mean it's the western observing point that is the clearly important one from the archaeological evidence you had this this building that had um a corridor going round the outside of it yeah. with high walls on both sides um and it opens out so so people now corridors going into buildings as mazes is very common uh, around there, and it's in the other uh, the other buildings. But in this one, you go round, and when you've you've you come round to the final side of the corridor, there's just an open opening in front of you. Um, there would have been doors and all other openings. You can see where the door jams would have would have fitted in. This one was just an open opening, so it's unique in that sense. And then you have this scattering of all the the um, art. Uh, votive offerings as they they clearly are so um that's clearly a special place for just one person observing point and look at the sunrise um and from there you see the towers perfectly on the horizon now um in fact the towers one to eleven are ever so slightly going away from you and then it bends around towards you so um, and the gap between 12 and 13 is 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 um on a a longer sight line across the site. So um, the, 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 the geometry works from there. And of course, the, 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 the solstice observations and all the observations in between work from there. All we have for the eastern observing point, we, we know that there was nothing around um, because the, 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 in the, the plaza, except there was this um, apparent, uh, apparently a, a small building at the spot where you would need to be in order to see the towers spanning it from the eastern side. And um, it's virtually completely destroyed. So it's more of a speculation that that um, something, that that was a point. And you can argue, well, because people always ask, you know, well, surely if you've got 12 things in a line, there's going to be some point where you can see the sun rising. Yeah. Well, archaeologically, there's no doubt about the Western observing point because that, about the eastern one, Yes, archaeologically, it, it is the only structure on that side within, you know, uh, tens of yards, in uh, tens of metres in, in, in any direction. Um, but beyond that, there's no evidence. Um, and yes, it, it, it's strange that the, 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 the towers go around so you probably would only have seen the very tip of the 13th tower. But there's no doubt from the other side, um, what's more, the end towers are, are taller. Yeah. So, um, the, the, and the thirteenth tower is actually really pretty unstable because it's so tall. In order to fit it in, um, it has to be about seven meters tall on the downslope side, on the south side. 
Uh, and it's pretty amazing. It's still there, uh, to be honest, but, um, yeah. Thank you very much. That's anyway, Yes. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Fred. Um, so we had a couple of comments and questions come up around, uh, one of our favorite heritage sites here in Australia, Uluru, um, mm. and it pertains to, you know, how appropriate or not it is to, to, you know, put lighting on Uluru itself or in the vicinity of Uluru for tourism purposes. And so I guess, uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts about, um, about that particular installation. Well, I mean, I think the, 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 it has to be the, the indigenous people who answer that question primarily, but my own, my own feeling would be that, um, the, the, the state of the natural site in the past would have not had any uh, artificial lighting so that it's wrong to put any sort of artificial lighting there now. Um, and certainly, you know, if it, you, you start doing um, anything that is trying to enhance, you know, sound and light shows or anything like that, it would be appalling. So, um, you know, with some dark sky sites like at Araki Mackenzie, you're, you, you have to make it safe. So you might have uh, a few little, um, you know, red lights on the approach to, to there so that, that, um, people can get there. But, um, at a place like Uluru, it's just a natural place. And then the natural sky should say it all there. So I would be deeply uncomfortable, um, seeing any sort of lighting there. And I imagine that, that anyone with any cultural association that would be ever so more deeply uncomfortable with that. Yes, thanks, for, thanks for that uh, perspective. Um, we've had a question here. Uh, there's been a lot about sunrises. What about the sunsets? Mm -hmm. Well, there are um, a number of, of um, orientations that we're, um, uh, we're, we're, we're keen on and, 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 and I think are fairly demonstrable to with sunset. I mean, Stonehenge is, 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 is one of them because people talk about um, midsummer sunrise at Stonehenge and that's what most of the Druids go there for uh, in, in June. But um, if you think about there's there's an avenue that, that approaches Stonehenge from the, the northeast. It comes up from the River Avon and it's about three kilometres long and it bends round and then it, the last stretch is straight up to Stonehenge. So the formal approach to Stonehenge, the ceremonial formal approach, is from the northeast. Now, if you think about any sacred site that, that, that um, you can think of, a church or anything else, you go into the place, the stuff that's important, the altar, whatever, is ahead of you. You don't go into a church and then turn around and the altar's back behind you again, which implies to me that, you know, if, if the formal approach to Stonehenge is from the northeast, then what the, the, the important thing, the important sacred direction is ahead of you, which would mean it's to do with midwinter sunset rather than midsummer sunrise behind. Um, and um, I've argued that for years. And um, I remember there was one, one of our... Um, time team programs or something they they thought they were talking about this and then they but Clive thinks they're all looking the wrong way you know this and thing um but I do think that at, at, at Stonehenge and also at at um Durrington Walls which is a site just uh two or three kilometers away there's another but in the uh, shorter ceremonial approach which works with um the setting sun at midsummer 
And one of the the viable theories is that there were actually processions between the two at the two solstices, and this was part of the ceremonial um, calendar and, and and what what was done through the year. And of course, Stonehenge wasn't that it wasn't exact in time; it was exact in space. It's pretty good in in the space, but um, it didn't matter that it would be cloudy three nights out of four because um, you know people didn't have an exact calendar they didn't you know the first time that you see the sun rising or setting in the right alignment is when you did the procession yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah very interesting um, so one question uh, from Gabriella is asking if there are examples of laws that protect culturally significant outdoor sites from being lit at night anywhere in existence in the world right now are there examples for us to draw from um, well, there are certainly lighting laws um, in, in, in countries. So, for example, Chile or, or um, and the Canaries. So Chile has quite a, a strong lighting laws around the, the observatories there. Um, and, and some of them are more challenged than others. Um, but th- there are certainly there are there are certainly different different examples of lighting laws. The the the, um, the ones on the Canaries are pretty strong as well. So, yeah, um, there's there's stuff out there. I think some of them are referred to in a number of the case studies on the uh, heritage portal for for the sites concerned. But certainly there are there are measures, legal measures out there, and indeed there need to be because you know, if people don't say world heritage status, um, I mean a misconception about it is that you know if 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 we get world heritage status, the the, the site is protected. No, it's not like that. What you have to do is to actually prove to UNESCO that you have the national infrastructure to preserve it, and then um, and, and then UNESCO will will recognise it, and then you use the recognition as you will. But it's up to you, the country, to to have the laws in place and the mechanisms in place to do the preservation. Very interesting. So the grassroots comes first, and then you you take it to UNESCO. Yeah. So that does uh, address another interesting question from this one from Hillary. Uh, thanks for the interesting talk. Um, what are the next steps with the World Heritage Acknowledgement of Dark Sky Areas um, and who's likely to do what? Well, um, the moment, I mean, I, I, I'm, it comes down to particular um, governments and what they decide to do. So I'm, I'm still full of hope with the New Zealand government on this, and we have a um, we have a superb advocate in the in the form of Margaret Austin, who is a, a former uh, New Zealand politician who's been pushing for this for ages, and still I mean she's in her eighties, but a, a marvelous lady. She she um, she is still pushing for ways to try and get that that one recognised. So I'm I'm still, but I, um, again, how far she's got with the I think it's the uh, DOC down there with that nationally. Uh, I haven't heard in the last twelve months or so. I have hopes of that one. Where we went with the, we had this initiative called uh, Windows to the Universe, which was trying to um, tie together see some of the most important modern observatory sites. And initially, it was northern Chile, a number of observatories there, Mauna Kea in Hawaii, and um, the Canarian observatories. Um, but getting Every time you get more than one government to try and work together, that multiplies up all the um, and the probabilities and the complications. And um, the last we had on that one was that the Canarians basically had d- had decided that actually everything was working fine for them, and they they didn't need to um, have world heritage status in 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 addition because. 
uh, what they seem to have managed on um, La Palma is the um, culturally the populations with them basically and that people respect that and there aren't too many pressures for the for the dark skies uh, to, to the, for, for the, that are pushing light pollution people respect the observatory so they're they the last I was aware of they were relatively happy there whereas the the Chileans um, had been hoping that world heritage status would help them protect the observatories and of course it, it's got to be the other way around and they've certainly got they've certainly got issues with um you know mining interests and other things at, at some of the sites and and um i think those battles at the moment are being fought nationally um and i'm to the latest of my knowledge was uh, they may they be going in other directions with the with the world heritage related to that um not necessarily to help with the light pollution issues right right yeah i think we have a a question or comment from Fred. Oh, once Fred. again, I don't want. Oh, same Fred. Hello. <laughs> I don't want to um, uh, take up too much time, but um, yeah, you're right about uh, observatories. We uh, and the order in which things come, we got the Siding Spring Observatory protected by state legislation before we put in the application for the Warren Bungle, Warren Bungle Dark Sky Park, which is right next door. Um, and and these things are all, you know. Observatories around the world are, are reasonably well pr protected, but we have a new threat on the horizon. Uh, um, you know what I'm going to say, I'm sure. I do, I do, and do. And um, I wondered what your view was uh, and what your thinking is on the satellite constellations. Um, I remember about 10 years ago being utterly horrified when I heard some story, which I, I didn't believe scientifically at the time, but it just, you know, where, where they were talking about um, selling, um, the, the, uh, developing a technology that could beam a laser um, and basically a small, small number of pixels effectively onto the moon. And so, you know, so that people could buy time so you could suddenly maybe have the full moon lit up with a big M or something. And, and I, I'm, even though I didn't believe it was was technically possible then or now, I uh, that thought horrified me. I'm afraid the thought of the constellation of satellites horrifies me just as much as that, if not far more. Um, you know, suddenly, you know, light pollution is is related to place, and and uh, at least there are lots of places on this planet where, you know, even if you have light pollution in some of them, you don't in others. But my goodness, the constellation of of satellites is um, is universal. It just wraps up the whole planet. I find the whole idea absolutely horrific. Basically, okay. Uh, second from <laughs> yeah, we uh, you have sympathetic ears here. Um, yeah, second from last question. So uh, from from Judith this time. Has Clive knowledge of the Wordy Young Stone arrangement in Western Victoria, Australia, uh, which is suggested indicate the setting sun at solstice and equinox? Um, yeah, yeah, I I do have knowledge of that, and I did I did uh, visit the place um, some years ago now. Um, the um, and in fact there is a case study um, of that in the first thematic study of the two UNESCO thematic studies, but it has become a very sensitive issue. As I understand it, the ownership of the site has, has changed and the current owners are extremely sensitive about um, 
um, the site being acknowledged, the site being called Wordy Yuang, and and and, um, um, and 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 anything being said about it. So we have actually, in respect of that, taken the the site off the um, portal. It was on there before. Um, we have um, communicated with the the current owners to say, you know, look, look, we we do respect this, and we we would would like your input on that. We would like to be able to say something. Um, but at the moment, um, the, the the current owners are um, telling us all not to not to say anything about it. So, um, but what we can't do, of course, is unpublish what's already out there. So, so um, the um, the first thematic study did mention the site, and other publications have in the past. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. And uh, the last question that I think has been burning a hole in everyone: Why are you in a shed in Wales, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I never said, did I? Okay, yeah, um, right. So um, in the last few years, well, well, we've known for 40 years or more that the bluestones at Stonehenge, which are the, the small, relatively small ones, the ones that are the sort of a couple of metres tall and weigh six tonnes, as opposed to the huge sarsens that weigh 10 times as much. But the bluestones uh, come from the Priscelli Mountains in southwest Wales. So it's about 300 uh, kilometres to get there. And that's been known for decades. Um, geologically, that's where the stones came from. It was speculated back in the 70s and 80s because no one could conceive that people would have transported these, you know, dozens of these six, six ton stones. Um, and it was thought that maybe they had been brought there on glaciers and that was a push by, you no, know, they were glacial erratics. Um, geologically, that's a nonsense because the glaciers that were would have pushed things southwards. They wouldn't have pushed things eastwards is, is one major argument. Um, basically, people, there's no doubt, and it hasn't been for a while, that, that the, the bluestones came from southwest Wales, from the Priscelli, um, a small mountain range here. Well, they're hills, really. Um, and um, in recent years, the geology has got better, and they can now locate um, to within particular quarries where different types of the bluestones came from. And so what's been happening for the last um, few years, Mike Parker Pearson, who's uh, one of the main uh, archaeological experts on Stonehenge, has been excavating around here, trying to see whether there is um, uh, there were precursors, like there were, were stone circles and, and, and other structures here, dating from before uh, when Stonehenge was built. Um, because if people... Go back 10, 15 years, people would say that, well, probably the people in Wessex were really powerful and the, the, um, the, um, the, they, their, their influence extended to you know, hundreds of kilometres, so they would get stones brought to them from South Wales if that's what they thought were important because of their healing properties, whatever they might be. Um, but we've now been discovering that there are, there are stone circles here um, some of them were known, but most of them were fallen or hidden under the peat or whatever. Um, and that they um, seem to be uh, some sort of precursors to Stonehenge. And there may even be uh, one or two stones that were physically transported. And one of Mike's ideas, one of the stones that we're excavating at the moment, was uh, a bluestone circle. And many of those bluestones were then physically transported. And possibly that there was actually a wave of people. People moved from um, from from this area, um, Southwest Wales, across to Stonehenge. 
so we're looking at those. And of course, one of the, the, the questions of interest is, well, if they were interested in the solstices at Stonehenge, uh, was there something in these earlier circles? Um, these are dating back to the sort of 3,500, 3,000 BC. Um, it, 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 uh, are they doing the same thing here? So I'm, I'm, I'm involved in that and we're looking at the alignments of these earlier sites. And that's why I'm over here. Thanks. And it's fun. Yeah. Well, we should yeah. let you get to the site. Uh, I guess there'll be waiting for you. Um, and I hope it's a fruitful, a fruitful yeah. trip. Yeah. Um, so thank you again so much, Clive. Uh, you know, we really appreciate um, you get taking the time and, and sitting in the shed for an hour and a half to talk to us. <laughs> I forgot I was in the shed. I got <laughs> Um, and so thank you so much. I hope this is a, a topic that we'll revisit. It's obviously had a lot of interest in, in the audience and it's certainly close to uh, the interests of, of ADSA. Um, and I'll just remind you to, if you haven't already, you know, please check out our website and um, the, the video for, of this talk will be posted there at some point in the not too distant future. And you can peruse that at your leisure. Um, we do. We are able to put these things up um, thanks to kind donations and sponsorship and engagement from uh, from you, the public. So um, if you're interested in this topic, please check out the website and um, we always appreciate donations. And uh, I'll leave it there for tonight. We'll hopefully see you at the next webinar, which will be announced through the usual channels. And so thank you everyone. And I wish you a pleasant evening or day wherever you are. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>